like I'm that kid in like freshman year who like just ate Taco Bell in her car, you know, <laughs> just like because she was stressed out for a final and like slept in the car after. I'm still her. I just now I'm almost getting I have a PhD and then I'm going to get it. That's but I'm still that girl, you know. <laughs> everyone. Welcome to Shiny Epi People. I'm Lisa Bodner. My guest today is Michelle Konka, an MD-PhD student at the University of Miami. Michelle defended her dissertation not long ago. Yay! Michelle is interested in multi-level predictors of cerebrovascular disease and cognitive aging. She's in her final year of medical school, and this fall she'll be applying to neurology residency programs for her clinical specialty, a very exciting time for sure. Michelle is originally from Southern California and is a second-generation Filipino-American. She grew up in a lower-middle-class family, and that has really shaped her perspective on research and medicine. Today, Michelle shares her experience being raised by parents who were immigrants and the barriers she faced as a young-looking woman of color and how she's used those experiences in a way that she's learned to value and love them. Michelle is so smart and engaging, and she's also incredibly funny. I think you're going to enjoy this episode. Michelle? Hey, Lisa. I am so honored that you asked me to be on the podcast. So happy you agreed to be on with me. I want to learn about how you got here, where you are. So your parents immigrated from the Philippines. Yes. Emigrated from, immigrated to the U.S. from the Philippines. Yes. Is that right? Oh my gosh. I had to look up immigrate and emigrate. And I was like, oh my God, I'm so stupid. I don't know which I have to Google it now. I... I'm going to trust you, your Google on this. Okay. Would you share with me why they wanted to come to the U.S.? So they just wanted a better life for themselves, a better future. And then they built that for us and my two, like me and my two brothers. But I know my parents, they worked really hard. They, uh, when we were living in West L.A., they scraped all of their money for me and my brother to go to private school. But all our money went to that. I mean, we were not well off. And you would, you know, I would see my parents experience subtle racism. When did you start seeing that? So my dad coached my little brother's baseball team and they made me go and do snack bar, which I was very good at. But anyway, <laughs> I'm like, I did a great job. Um, <laughs> I was sitting near the parents and like the things they would say about my dad's accent. I mean, I think I went off on a dude once being like, shut up, don't talk about my dad that way. I think I was like, maybe if my brother was like eight, that means I was in my teens because he he was the random child. He was the... He's... <laughs> Do you call him that to his face? Oh, totally. Okay. 100%. <laughs> we call him the random child. And he, so he's eight years younger than me. And then me and my bro- me and my other brother... <laughs> I guess better than calling him the unwanted child. <laughs> yeah, that has happened. To, I mean, we've called him that too, but I 
didn't know if I wanted to make that podcast ready. <laughs> My mom likes to call him a surprise. Yeah, He's a surprise. That's sweet. I know you're the, you're a mom, so you no. love all your kids. I mean, and- <laughs> let's not go overboard. <laughs> Sometimes I'll call her and be like, hey, mom, let's talk. And she's like, I'm like busy. I need to go to my rowing class. Okay, I guess I'll like sit on the couch and drink my wine. (laughs) You don't want to talk to me. You want to go to your exercise class. What was good about being growing up a child of immigrants? So many good things. I mean, the Filipino culture is one of hospitality, of love. and I think you just appreciate things differently than other people do who don't, I don't know, who didn't have to watch their parents go through a lot of sacrifice to make make it. You know, they taught us resilience by example. I don't take things for granted. I try not to anyway. I found that it helps with clinical practice because when my patients tell me they can't afford their meds and their meds cost $10, I 100% feel that. I'm like. I understand what you're saying and I will, I'm going to, let me talk to someone. Let me find the resources. Let me try to see if there's a generic version. My parents had an abundance of love, but we did not, like they didn't have a college fund for me. They, they would have loved to, but it just wasn't going to happen given our circumstance. I had to work throughout college, at least part-time. I had to take out loans that are my loans. Even when I moved out, I moved out and I knew I was going to be living that college life, ramen or jack in the box or whatever. I have to give a lot of credit to my husband as well. I mean, I think he was the first person outside my family to be like, yeah, you can do MD-PhD, duh. Like, of course you could do it. And I was like, oh, like, really? And he legit supported that, like emotionally and financially did like help me pay for and he had to pay his way through college too he had to work throughout college too so when you when you have that experience of like I remember having to stay in a really shady hotel for one of my med school interviews and I don't think I slept I think I stayed on the phone with him for like five hours because I was like (laughs) I might be on tv murdered in west sacramento right now it was not wise (laughs) <laughs> my mom's gonna listen to this and she's gonna be horrified that I did that sorry mom will she listen will you tell her you're on a podcast yeah I told her when I was like by the way uh I'm gonna be on a podcast and she I didn't even know if she no offense mom love you but like I didn't know she listened to podcasts because I barely listened to I only started recently see again she's too cool for me but she's like oh yeah like I'll definitely listen so yeah Sorry, mom. I did stay in a shady hotel in Sacramento when I applied to UC Davis. But you know what? I'm here. You made it. I made it. Why did you choose to do an MD-PhD program? I think it was all about mentorship. Honestly, I don't think I would have done it without Claudia Kawas and Maria Crada at UC Irvine. I wanted to do MD-PhD. Like, I, I really thought that it was a good way to use what skills I had to help people. But I thought they only did basic science. So and I spent six months in neuroscience. And I was like, I don't really want to be in the lab all day. I don't really like this. Like, I'm sad. I guess I can't do this. And then towards the end of college, the postdoc in my lab was like, you should do an MD PhD in Epi. And then I talked to my PI, Claudia Kawas, And she was like, if I could have done it, I would have done it. You know, she was hardcore woman of color in medicine. I knew she would have been able to do it if she could. And I was like, I should just do it. I know that I want to be a really, I want to be a legit epidemiologist. And then 
my future mentor I met at interviews, Clinton Wright, throughout the first couple years of med school, like really, really said, like, you have a knack for this, like, keep going, do it. And then Tanya Rundeck did the same thing when I was in PhD world. So mentorship is key. I always tell like the younger MD PhDs, it does not matter one bit what they study. I don't care. If they had studied CVD epi or cancer epi, I would have done it because they were such good mentors. It doesn't matter, truly, in PhD. For all of you PhD students out there, pick your mentor you like because it's it literally changes. I've seen people go through bad mentors who don't end up in science, who should be in science. Like they are bright. They ask interesting questions. These are often women. These are often women of color. And then they just leave because they've had bad mentorship. It sucks. Like these are the people that we should be keeping, not the people we should be pushing out. In my 20s, I feel like I really learned my priorities in life. That's early to learn priorities. So good for you. I mean, some. I don't know. I don't know everything, obviously. But I don't know. I just feel like it used to be about the grind. And now it's it's about trying to do things that really fulfill me. And that's still the same job that I want to do. It's just I don't want to do it, you know, without considering family and all that stuff. Do you think that that change was a, was it a slow thing or a quick thing? I think it happened when I had a super burnout period in the middle of my program to the point where I had to like take a week off and really think, is this, do I really want to be miserable every single day? I mean, there has to be a way to do this without sacrificing everything else. That just doesn't seem reasonable. I was so tired. I was so miserable. I needed to stop working. And then I started seeing the therapist available to us, thank goodness, at U Miami for the medical students. I mean, she's a godsend. I She taught me so much about how to manage expectations, manage stress, how to take away those like negative thought processes. So that was a major part of it. But I realized that if I stopped working, like, it's not like my bosses were hounding me about this paper draft. You know, I, I learned that it was kind of um, up to me to decide what my life was going to kind of look like. I think a lot of women in academia feel this way because there are those everyday microaggressions. You know, when we like do rounds in the hospital, like no one thinks I'm a med student. Or when we, you know, do presentations at conferences, like the first thing people will comment on is like my appearance and how young I look and how cute I look. And I mean, I've had like linear mixed models mansplained to me by a doctor who did not know what he was talking. I was like, dude, please, like, I know that I'm just a grad student, quote unquote, and you're like an MD, quote unquote, but you have no idea what you're talking about. I just took a class on this. I think a lot of us internalize it and and try to overcompensate. But I think it's as a result of structural barriers to success. But now I know you can still work hard and try to prove yourself, but it's not about you can't sacrifice your mental health or whatever you enjoy, like family, friends, whatever. It's just not, it's not worth that. You can work hard. I'm, I'm a hard worker, but it's not worth sacrificing all that other stuff. What do you actually do differently now in terms of how you work compared with before when you were kind of verging on burnout? 
I mean, I definitely try to take at least a day off a week with clinical rotations. That's usually my goal. But when I can, I take the whole weekend off. When I when I don't have to study at night or work, I don't. Um, and I'm better at setting boundaries now, I think. You know, it's hard for, I think a lot of us can, you know, relate to not being able to say no, blah, 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 that classic problem. But now I think I'm better at saying, you know, I'm happy to do this for you, but I need time. You know, I need, this has to wait till next week because I already have a bunch of Zoom meetings today. I'm not going to drop everything to help you. So kind of realizing that I do have a say instead of doing what everyone else says. Trainees who are in MD-PhD programs are obviously uniquely situated where you understand both the struggles of someone who's getting a PhD, writing a dissertation, and the struggles of someone who is a med student. Are there struggles, though, that are especially unique to people that are doing both? A unique struggle, I think, is just that you're always going to be straddling the two worlds. For me, I've always felt like an outsider in both. For me, it's made me a little bit um, used to being really independent like and resourceful because I feel like I don't mind being an outsider. It is diff- It is a little bit different having a dual kind of identity because I do feel strongly that I'm both. Like it's not one or the other, although I think people's personalities kind of lean one way or the other. So at this point in your training, what do you wish PhDs in epidemiology knew about clinical medicine? The problems they see in medicine, we see too, and we see it up close. And often like, like the physician can't do anything about it. That's the saddest part of it. I'm thinking of, you know, all my patients who are lost to follow up, who can't afford their meds, who can't get transportation to the clinic. The physician is so trained to focus on the pathology and not the social determinants of health. And there's no resources too, like even physicians who want to address those. That's why social workers are so critical to medicine. I mean, they don't get enough credit. I mean, shout out social work because they do, they try to make sure your patients are discharged safely. How have the challenges of being an MD-PhD student changed as you've progressed in your training? I had a real like uh, self-confidence struggle throughout, um, which started in college. I feel like throughout like grade school and high school, I don't know, I, I was pretty like self-confident. Like I didn't really compare myself to other kids an honors kid. I was a nerd. I was in band and I loved it. Like I, mm-hmm. I wasn't. What did you play? Like, I was in band. Okay. So I was in color. I didn't play an instrument. My husband hates when I say this, but no one knows what color guard is. So I just. Do think- I only know what it is because I was in band? Yes, totally. A hundred percent. Did you use rifles or just flags? I was also spun rifle and saber. Shout out to Jenny and Jason, <laughs> my high school. I love, they were my first like real mentor. Shout out y'all. <laughs> So wait, saber? Like, is that a sword? It's basically a sword. Wait, so you had a rifle that's a fake rifle, but it's like looks like a rifle and it's heavy-ish, right? And you kind of twirl it like it's a baton. Yes. And I toss in the air and danced and was a huge nerd. And I loved it. In another wait, but life. what do you do with the sword? Same thing. Dance around with it, toss it in the air, try to catch it, try not to hit people. Did you swallow it? No. 
You know, I like to post a photo of people at least. I definitely have color. Okay, thank you. A hundred and ten percent I have. I need that. I'm going to call my mom. She has everything. Okay. What is your mom's name? Mylene. Mylene, (laughs) find us the photos. (laughs) She's going to love this. You can go to your rowing class. Yeah. (laughs) But your priority is finding the photos of your daughter holding a fake rifle. And glitter, like a lot of glitter, a lot of like bright eyeshadow and blush. Just like a lot of blush and hair gel. You're a woman of color. You also are very youthful looking. It's good jeans. I'm sure. Mylene? (laughs) (laughs) I think people just don't take you seriously immediately but they immediately take others seriously i just feel like i have to work harder to get people to believe that i'm competent and i used to fight it a lot like i remember when i was applying to med school i did mock interviews and i was told to change the way i sounded change the way i looked i needed to lower the pitch of my voice i mean i'm from socal so my real socal voice is I mean, I'll say like more times than you can count. I do too. And I'm not even from Southern California. It is a serious problem. It's a problem. Or is it? Like, I don't know. I think that those are just constructs that some white dude decided that was professional. And I'm small. So like the space I take up is not that big either, right? Whereas like, you know, some of my colleagues are 5'10" dudes who like they take up space in a room they command space in the room yeah unfortunately sometimes patients would be like oh you're too young to be a doctor that's from patients you know who I help to care for and they eventually listen to me but I don't know I'm trying to work on just being a little bit more compassionate to people about that I really try to think about how scary it is to be a patient in the hospital. I mean, we get so acclimated to the hospital. The hospital is not a normal environment for anybody. It's it's scary. It's cold. And now during COVID, like I was doing my surgery rotation, patients were in there. Their families couldn't be there with them. Like I was just like, are we really doing good care by not letting this dude's wife sit with him as he's waiting to go to surgery like as routine as the surgery might be for the surgeon it's not routine for the family it's scary like their pain is real and i don't know i think it goes a long way when you can just be like yeah it sucks being here at a party where can someone find you food table food table 100 <laughs> percent. and what are you looking for chips and dip and wine lisa i have an idea we should okay. do, have you seen drunk history <laughs> what if we did drunk epidemiology i want to get ellie on board <laughs> yes i just think it'd be hilarious if we explain epidemiologic concepts drunk <laughs> i think that we should brainstorm who would be really good on this show but probably off the air. Yes. <laughs> yeah. DM Lisa. <laughs> no, DM no. I Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. I don't need to organize. I don't need to give you the list of names, though I've got a lot of good ones. <laughs> you know who you are out there. What can you talk about for hours? Sports. So you'll 
probably like this, but I am a Steelers fan. <gasps> really? Yes. So I, my husband was a Steelers fan. I didn't know a lot about football before I met him. And then I'm like a hardcore Lakers fan, like basketball. Mm-hmm. Born and raised, out of the womb, Lakers fan. That's just like my thing. Is it comforting for you to see sports on TV again? It is so nice to have something to cheer for, something to hope for. And sports is really important in my family. Like that's the way I connected with my dad. We like back home, we were watching the Lakers games together. And what epidemiologist is going to study the bubble, the NBA bubble? Who's on that right now? Someone's doing it. Epi Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> Tell us. What's your favorite snack food? Probably potato chips. I love Trader Joe's, obviously. It's just like a you should you should get an ad for Trader <laughs> Joe's because I mean we're just you should get paid, but they have these um like salt and pepper chips that are really good. Um if you had to be a kitchen appliance, which one would you be and why? Oh the uh the kitchen aid. The mixer? Yeah. I love that thing. I think it's the best thing ever. My mother-in-law bought it for us. I'm a big baker and like I like to cook and stuff. It's just reliable, you know? It's in families forever and then you have cake at the end. You know, it's like <laughs> it's like or bread or all the good foods. It, yeah. Only good things come from the mixer. Shout out to KitchenAid, please sponsor this podcast. <laughs> Mine is blue. What color is yours? <gasps> Mine is blue, too. <gasps> is it like a, what kind of blue? Mine's like a cobalt blue. No, I was going to say cobalt. <laughs> Whoa. We have matching mixers. <laughs> what makes you laugh the most? I think my little brother, my youngest brother, Matt. The mistake? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The random one. Oh, right. I called him a mistake. You <laughs> called him the random one. <laughs> and your mom called him a surprise. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Who was your worst teacher and why? I had an algebra teacher who was really mean and he sat you in order of your grade (laughs) in the class. Yeah. So I was in, he said that the students who were doing bad needed to be in the front because they would learn more. (laughs) So I was in the front and I was like, I am going to defeat you. You are not nice. And I made it all the way to the back A corner by the end. But oh my God. Wow. Maybe that was the whole point was to like humiliate you into working harder. It worked, but it doesn't have to be that way. This is the point. It doesn't have to be this way. It was horrible. Oh, that's sad. What person in your life could you team up with and have a good chance of winning the amazing race? Oh, my husband, Cameron. He's athletic. We're a good team. And I'm really good at delegating. So he can do stuff. And he's clever. He's very smart. So I guess the better question is, would he choose you to be his amazing race partner if I asked him the same thing? Probably not. You know, you can't win them all. No, you can't. I would be terrible at that. I would be terrible too. I have the worst sense of direction. Like no one would ever choose me. No one would ever in their right mind would choose me. Cameron definitely wouldn't then. My husband. No, I'm terrible at directions. You have to have a sense of direction. Oh my God. No way. No, no, no. (laughs) It was just so lovely to meet you. This was so fun. Thank you so much. Thank oh you. Gosh. I hope it was coherent. I, I feel like I talked a lot. I don't know if it was all 
made sense, but... So it's my job to turn it into magic? You work your magic. You get rid of my vocal fry. I don't know what you do in there. (laughs) You know, whatever you need to do, Lisa, we got to get the ratings. We got to get Trader Joe's to sponsor. You know, we got to make this happen. Right. I realized that something we didn't do at the beginning was say hello. So could we say hello and pretend like we said it Yes, at the beginning? Yes. That was my fault. No, no. It was because we got on and I forgot to hit record. (laughs) (laughs) And then if we had, we said hello, but I didn't record it. So this was my fault purely. But I think we need to go back and like, I'll, I'll dub it in at the beginning. Yeah. Okay. You ready to pretend like we're just meeting each other for the first time? Yes. I am ready. Hi, Michelle. Hey, Lisa.